Here's where I'm going today. Um, I brought some ibuprofen. And uh, I didn't realize they made them this big. And then somebody tells me, oh, no, they've got like a thousand caplets. And I'm like, wow, we hate pain in our culture, don't we? Like we can't stand pain. And we do everything we can to numb pain. And we were talking about this idea that we're trying to present out of John that Jesus Christ is coming into this world. And the thing that Jesus Christ is trying to tell us is, is that we have a major enemy and it's not what we think it is. And all the people, if you remember, we've talked about this from the very beginning of John. What they thought Jesus Christ was coming to do was to make their life more comfy and cushy. And so Jesus was going to show up, drive all the Romans out. He was going to make everything great, which, by the way, one day Jesus Christ will return and he will take care of all things. But he came the first time to deal with their greatest enemy, which is sin and death. That was their greatest enemy. The problem is, it's kind of like with us, if in one of the people on our sermon prep team was telling me about this, he goes, could you imagine if you showed up to your doctor and he said, hey, I've got bad news for you. He goes, you've got cancer. And you say, oh, that's great. You know, just could you give me something for the pain, a little ibuprofen? And he would look at you and go, what? You have cancer. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I just need to numb the pain a little bit. And in a lot of ways, that's what was happening at that time, is that Jesus Christ was coming and saying, your problem isn't the Romans, your problem isn't all these other things. Your problem is sin and death, and I came to deal with those very issues. But still today, we numb it in all kinds of ways, and I see this with Christians all the time, in which even some of them, you'll see this a lot, they'll, drugs and alcohol, so they'll pub, pub, plug that in to deal with pain that's going on in their lives, all the while God's offering so much. Some of them... Little TV and movies. Just need to check out for a while, you know what I'm saying? Watch a little Fox News to really find out what's going on in the world. And then there's some of us need, need to, we need a little internet in our life. Especially the happiest place on earth called Facebook. <laughs> don't you ever wish on Facebook they'd show you what really it's like in their lives so you don't feel guilty that you don't have the happiest life on the planet? I used to think only high school boys played it, but now I found out a lot of people play video games. So we play little video games, and finally that's quite enough. And some of us, man, our cell phone, we can't get rid of it. We have to be able to text. So we keep texting. Not only that, some of us, man, what we deal with pain is we have a little bit of food. So I deal with pain that way. Sometimes men, and even I find out women at this point, struggle with a little bit of porn. Or even, we do female porn, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> but in a weird way, we're just like, look, I don't want you to solve my main problem. I just want a comfy life. And the thing that all of us are going to have to understand in this room is that Jesus didn't come the first time offering a comfy life. He came the first time actually offering something so much greater, which was he came to conquer our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And in it, all of our ways in which we try to hide from it, we try to put things around us so that I don't have to deal with it. And so we, we do each of these things, just make my life comfy. And it's like it was then. I want all of those things just to be kind of put out of my life for a little while. So in this life, I can just kind of have things to deal with. And Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. He's looking at us and saying, no, it's bigger than that. 
And I think one of the things that we're going to see even next week when we get to when Jesus Christ raises Lazarus from the dead, rarely do we ever see that moment in which Jesus Christ angrily stands in front of the tomb. We wonder what is he angry at? And what he's angry at is the enemy that he's been trying to tell them about. He's angry at death. He's staring it in the face, this thing that has totally wrecked this relationship between God and man. And so in it, he doesn't want them to understand that I'm just going to give you some ad to skate through life. I came to solve your deepest problem, and that is you need to be right with God. And in it, the only way we're going to ever be right, all of this stuff, this way we numb ourselves, it solely doesn't only numb us from the pain, but it numbs us from truly seeing God. These things take our eyes off of God and they start to put our eyes on the wrong thing. And again, it's nothing, well, not all, some of them are bad, but not all those things are a bad thing. But if we're not careful, these things take our eyes off of God. And what Jesus Christ is trying to tell us, what John is writing about throughout the entire, and I'm spitting everywhere. Oh my gosh. By the way, these weren't real Advil. I'm not going to OD here in a little bit. But the real thing that he's trying to talk about is Jesus came so that we might see the glory of God. All throughout the Bible, that's been the heartbeat of those that truly know Jesus. As we, are, we say along with Moses, God, show me your glory. Because in the book of John, everything about the glory, when I see God's glory, the idea is I believe. And when I believe, the promise of chapter 10 was, then I can have life. Jesus Christ knew that you would never have life unless you see him accurately. And that's why even in our lives, the scariest thing we have to deal with is that sometimes God will take these things away so that we can get our eyes back on what's most important on him. And so even open your Bibles right now. Let me just show you. Here's just some of the ways. We'll just do a little scan through John. John 1.14. Just kind of go there first. How does he use this idea of us seeing his glory? John 1.14. He says this. The word became flesh and took up residence amongst us and we saw his glory. The glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth who came from the Father. Why did he come to this earth? So that we might see his glory. And he's now going to tell us even something more. Why did he come to reveal his glory? Go to John 2.11, just maybe a page or so over in your Bible. The reason that he turned water into wine wasn't to somehow come and pull a rabbit out of his hat to show people that he was cool. It says Jesus did this first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory. Why? His disciples believed in him. See, all the way through it, the whole book of John is about Jesus. And yes, he performed all kinds of things. He did various things. We've talked about all these various things in which we do. This raising Lazarus from the dead is going to be his last kind of miracle he does before his own resurrection. But the whole point of it, according to John 20, is is that we might now see and believe and in believing have life. I would say the major reason that we, and even I would just say Christians across the United States, the reason that we are not experiencing the life that we should experience is because our eyes are focused on the wrong thing. They're not focused on Jesus Christ. And because they're not on Jesus Christ and because we're not enamored with his glory and the way that he displays his power, we then have these lives that aren't life. 
And this is why John's writing into this, and he wants us to see this connection that seeing Jesus' glory and believing leads to life. That's his whole point all throughout this. And even in 1 John 4, 9, you don't have to go there, but even says to us, look, this is love. This is this idea that, that what Jesus Christ came to do, if you want to know what love is, well, God sent his world and the Son, their Son into the world so that we might live, so that we might believe. And so at this point in chapter 10, that's what he's after. And so go to chapter 10, even look at verse 10. What's his point? He says it to us clearly, Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. I'm not talking about having Bentleys. I'm not talking about having the best life now. I'm not talking about all that other ridiculous stuff. I'm talking about pure, authentic life because we have a relationship with the God of the universe. It's not about the things we have. If God wants to give us things, that's fine. But we're like Job, man. The Lord gives and what? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If I have a relationship with the God of the universe, why do I need anything else? So therefore, all the things I have aren't my things anyways. They're things that he's given to me to be used. What for? His glory. Why? So that people might believe. Why? So that people might have life. But I think one of the things that's interesting about this passage is that when we come to chapter 10, you have a group of people that are probably reading this and especially learn this from like Revelation 2 through 3 that are suffering. They're hearing John write about this Jesus who's the good shepherd and the good shepherd who protects his flock and provides for his flock. This Jesus that comes and offers life and life abundantly. In the back of their heads, they're probably asking this question, okay, great, he's the good shepherd, but if he's the good shepherd, why am I suffering? Why is it that sometimes I, I suffer persecution? Why is it sometimes I, offer, I suffer loss, loss of life, loss of things, loss of possessions? Why is it that if he's the good shepherd, then when I look at my life, do I still see sickness in my life? And I think it's just been something that's been a problem all throughout the Bible that God has constantly tried to answer. Go to Habakkuk, a book I rarely ever go to. But I thought, man, Habakkuk, that's a cool name. Let's go to Habakkuk. Look at chapter 1. And by the way, if you don't know where it is, go to the table of contents. That's how we all had to learn to get there. But Habakkuk, look at chapter 1. And I'm going to read out of the New Living. It just, I thought the way the, the New Living captured this was perfect. Habakkuk 1, look at verse 2. He's just sitting there crying out. It's one of the prophets of God. And he said, God, how long do I have to cry out for help from you to, before you listen? How many times do I have to yell, help, murder, authorities, before you come to the rescue? Why do you force me to look at evil, stare trouble in the face day after day? In other words, he's like any of the rest of us that whenever trouble hits, we're asking the question, God, where are you? David asked it in Psalm 13. He's walking through this, this whole mantra. And one of the things he's saying to God is how long. It's this Hebrew word, Athenah, which is just an, it's an onomatopoeia, just telling you the exhaustion. God, how long? Where are you? But I love how Habakkuk ends. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Something happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Because in verse 17, he says to them, 
Though the cherry trees don't blossom and the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are worm-eaten and the wheat fields stunted, though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns are empty, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior God, counting on God's rule to prevail. I take heart and gain strength. What happened? The whole thing that happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3 is, is Habakkuk got a different perspective. And instead of seeing things from his eyes, he was allowed to see things from God's eyes. See, if I'm going to ever walk through life, and especially this amazing story about Lazarus, and it's going to deal with the death of a loved one, someone that they cherished and loved and cared for. If I'm going to walk through that, I need God's perspective because if I don't have God's perspective, I'm going to get trapped in that. And oftentimes what I see is I see not only in my life, but in others who have walked through deep tragedy or deep hurt is that that thing can either turn you into this person that is trapped in it, that doesn't know where to go with it, that even at times becomes crusty, or you can be like Habakkuk who suddenly now begins to see joy even in the midst of pain. But I will never see that until I get God's perspective. So if you could, let's all stand up. I just want to read John 11, the passage we're going to be in today. Let's just honor the Lord and stand up and read it together, starting in verse 1. How are we going to gain the perspective of God in this? Look at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her mother and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not on him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. God, I beg you, would you help me today to be able to communicate the amazingness of this passage? God, will we not lose sight of what you're trying to teach us, those of us that are your sheep, how it is at times you choose to love us because you passionately love us. God, I pray people would hear this today, and I know there's all kinds of people in this room that have gone through all kinds of different things, and I pray what this is, Father, at the end of the day, is a capacity and an ability that you provide through your spirit for us all to capture God's eyes on difficult situations. God, that we would know at the end of this and sense that you truly do love us, even in the midst of some of the darkest hours of our lives, that God, in fact, You love us enough to not only give us the things that we want, but more importantly, the things we need. And so give us that grace today, I beg you, in your precious name. Amen. Okay, let's get going. Have a seat. Now here's the scene. 
John 10, Jesus Christ has just been out with people, and we know this, that people were believing. So in other words, he was having fruitful ministry. Things were going well. In the midst of things going well, all of a sudden, somebody comes to them and delivers this message, and you see it in, in, in kind of laid out for us in verses 1 and 2, but something is happening that's a personal emergency, and in verses 1 and 2, we learn what the personal emergency is. There's this friend of his, Lazarus, that's ill. Now, not only do we see that there's Lazarus in here, but he he connects the dots to us. John wants us to understand that not only is there Lazarus, but there's Mary and there's Martha. And over and over, what he wants him to know, who he wants us to know who these people are. Well, the first person kind of that he brings up is Lazarus, but let me start with Mary. Mary was the one that, if you remember right, just loved to sit at Jesus' feet. She would sit there and just absorb his teaching. And in fact, not only that, but John makes sure to include a story about her that is going to, we're going to talk about later in chapter 12 of her taking this perfume and anointing Jesus' feet with it, which was a sign of respect at that time, but not using water or a towel, but using perfume and even her own hair out of sign of respect for who Jesus Christ was. In other words, she was one who adored Jesus. We also learn about Martha. She was just as devout, but man, she was a busybody. Man, we learned that Jesus at times had to go, Martha, come here, let me give you a hug. You're a little too, you're too high strung. That piece like a river, you know, it's just, wow, girl. She loved Jesus, but she would just go in and she would work. And and Jesus just had a love for these sisters. But the other thing we learned that there's this other guy, Lazarus, who we don't learn a whole lot about. But what we probably know from him and what we can gather is that he must have been the younger brother of Martha and Mary. We know that because he didn't have much responsibility, which most young brothers don't. (laughs) But bottom line, what John wants us to know is this family was very, very, very dear to Jesus. And we're just anybody. In fact, what we know from the Gospels is, is he loved being in their home. In fact, the way that you would ever talk about it, getting it from the Gospels, this is the place where Jesus Christ, when he was tired, could go and kick his sandals off and relax. That's what kind of a home it was. And so obviously in the midst of it, he had gotten to know them. And probably the reason that they were so attracted to Jesus is we don't ever hear about their parents, which probably means by this point, their parents weren't around and it was just the three of them taking care of one another. But if you've ever been around death and sickness before, you know that in this home, suddenly there was this place where Jesus Christ would just go relax and capture his mind and pray. Suddenly, man, it was transformed into fear and chaos. I don't know how many phone calls I've gotten as a pastor saying, you got to get over here now. It's not good. You walk into it and what do you see? You see people crying, people desperate the one that's ill, the one that they love is lying there in whatever fashion, whether it's at their home or their hospital, and they just have that eyes as they look to you, do something. Can you do something? And you can almost see it in verse 3. Look down there. With, it is almost like with nothing left to do, these sisters that had seen Jesus perform miracles, she must have, Martha probably did, grab a servant and look at him and say, go to him and tell him the one whom you love is ill. Go. I can just imagine that servant, because more than likely, whoever went for them was either a good friend or a servant, and I can just see them, and we know that he's one day away, and so this person hiked off to go tell Jesus, Jesus, you've got to get back here. This family that you love, that you're compassionate towards, you've got to get back. And even the way that they talk about it, it wasn't like an invitation or request. She's saying to Jesus, please come. 
get here. We're desperate. She just knew as soon as Jesus heard of it that, that he would hurry there, that he would come. She, she knew that he was compassionate. She knew that he was powerful. And so she's looking at that, that servant or that friend saying, go get him because I know who Jesus is. In fact, the word that she uses there in verse 3 is that word for love is our word for more of a friendship love. In other words, the way of saying it would probably be your good friend whom you love is sick. Get back here. John wants us to know that these women that Jesus loves, they know Jesus loves Lazarus. It seems to be that John is seeking to convey like just how much Jesus cared about them. In other words, he's reaching back into John 10 and saying, remember he said he's the good shepherd? I'm laying out for you these ones that we know while he was on earth, he demonstrated that he loved them. He was the good shepherd to them. They weren't just acquaintances. These were close, intimate friends. They were in his circle, his tight circle. Obviously, one of Jesus' sheep. And of course he would come. It's inconceivable that he wouldn't. And I can almost imagine Martha at that point after she told him, being the big sister of the clan, going back in and taking charge again like she always did. But in the back of her head, you know she's going, go get Jesus. The response, however, is not what you expected. When you look at verse 4, look down there. The servant comes, verse 3, tells him, Hey, this one that you love, Lazarus, he's ill. Please come. And here's Jesus' response to him. With everyone standing around, probably watching how he's going to respond, he says, This Ill- illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, on one level, wouldn't you be like, what? And any of us would have been like, what? (gasps) We gotta go. Jesus' response to it, though, is he wants us to understand that this is not about death alone. He knows Lazarus is gonna die. He knows everything that's about ready to take place. He's sovereign over what's going on inside of this, but he wants us to know it's mainly about God and it's about this opportunity in which they're gonna be seeing Jesus Christ glorified. See, at the end of the day, we always talk about it. You know, we just wanna see Jesus' glory. And my question is, do you really? See, Jesus isn't entering into this peachy keen kind of revival where all of us come in and the music's playing, we've got our hands in there and everything's going great. He's talking about the way in which you will see my glory is in the midst of one of the lowest moments of a person's life. Do you want to see my glory? What I love about it, though, is the heart of the text comes out in verses 5 and 6. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. In other words, he's repeating again. See, he loves them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So in other words, in case we missed it, he loves them. And in fact, he uses this word love, which we know a lot of us have heard about, this Greek word agape, this love that is deep and it's meaningful and it's unstoppable. It's the highest type of love. I love them in this way. And you would have expected at this point to hear Jesus say, upon hearing that Lazarus was sick, he looked at one of his disciples and said, go get me a trusty steed because I need to make hay for Bethany because Lazarus is sick. And you know, everyone's sitting there going, what are we going to do? 
And the way he responded is, he used this word so. You see it there, like in your text, other texts have therefore. Whenever we see the therefore, it points us back to what was said before. And another way of saying it now is, is therefore, based upon his love for the family, he willfully chose to stay two days longer where he was. What? I mean, can't you just see everybody in there going, what in the world? Lazarus is sick, Jesus. He knew what delay would mean, if you think about it. It meant that Lazarus was going to die. Jesus is choosing to let Lazarus die, even to make sure, if you look down on it, he's not going to be just dead. He's going to be dead dead when he gets there four days later. Jesus understood that Lazarus wasn't going to kind of die. He was fully dead. And so in other words, so we don't think this is clean and neat in any kind of a nice and easy way. It was not going to be an easy thing for that family to go to, through. I think about it in our world today, we have drugs. And so oftentimes we give it and we watch people. And if you've ever seen somebody die, it's one of the worst things ever. The heave and the gasping of them trying to get air. And then all of a sudden, it seems like the most peaceful moment is finally when they quit breathing. And Jesus is saying to this family that he loves Mary, Martha, Lazarus, these ones that I care for. Based upon my love for you, I'm not coming. The whole time they were probably wondering why Jesus couldn't make it. It was painful. It was real. And Jesus didn't show up and stop it purposely. And how is this love? A lot of people go to 23 and 26, verses 23 and 26, and they'll point to it. You can go there. Look at it with me. Where it says to him, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And we'll talk about what that means next week. But he said, look, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, what he was saying to them is that his raising of Lazarus in people's heads is, is, is yes, everyone will raise again. Even she understood that. And that's true. But it didn't change the fact, and I think it's naive to not think, that this was a messy, messy situation. The good shepherd allowed Lazarus to die. I believe in writing this, John intends for everyone to be just perplexed as they sit there and they're trying to figure out why would he do this. And he wants to contrast even the unique way in which we tend to view love. And now we're going to understand something from God's gigantic perspective now. How does he view love? Because he's already told us that he loves us. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. So he must be thinking about this in a way that is completely different than us. I can just imagine even just sitting there in that room watching people. I can imagine even seeing Mary and Martha sitting around his bed and just watching him. He finally dies probably after the first day. They sit around oftentimes in that culture till about the third day. And inside of that Jewish culture at that time, they believed that by the fourth day when decay set in, that's when his spirit would finally leave. So they're probably sitting around thinking, his spirit must still be kind of wanting to, to still be here. He hasn't seen decay yet. Where's Jesus? He's going to show up. And probably in between it, Martha's going in, checking on this. She's coming out probably every hour wondering, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And somebody at some point must have looked at her and said, listen, Lazarus is dead. He's decaying. You gotta let him go. It's time to embalm him. Hope disappeared. Sisters must have touched his lifeless body one last time. 
And then they took pounds of linen that was dipped inside of spices and they began to embalm him. After they would embalm him, a huge procession would go out to his tomb. And if you've ever seen a Middle East funeral, everybody's just crying and wailing and they're taking the body out and they get the body out there and they place him in the tomb. And it's something that I always see when somebody sees inside of that grave is that the moment the dirt starts to fall on top of it, there's a finalness and they watch the tomb as the, as the stone was rolled in front of it and everything was stopped. And at that point, then they walk back and as they're walking back, there would have been people lining the whole way in the village just crying and wailing. And all the while, the thing we have to remember is, is that when Where was Jesus? In fact, look at verse 32. We even see that. He's talking with them and they say to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even his disciples are confused. Verses 7 through 16, you see this. Finally, Jesus looks at him and goes, okay, it's time to go. And they must have been thinking to themselves, what? He's dead. Do you understand if we go back You'll die, Jesus. You're the walking dead. They're just waiting to kill you. Why would we go back for a dead guy? And Jesus looks at him and says, he's not dead, he's sleeping. And they were thinking, oh, great, so just resuscitate him. And he was trying to help them understand that, no, those that know me don't truly die. They sleep. Their body rests until the day that I come back. Yes, we understand as Christians that when I die, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. But one day, my body and my soul will be now given this full rest inside of, the etern- inside of eternity when I'm with God. And so Jesus is trying to explain that, and they don't get it. But he looks at him and says, no, he's dead. And it just some of the stuff I've been thinking about, and I just I even look around this room, and I see people I love, and I just know that at the core of it, I know there are some of you that have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. See, at the core of it, we ask questions like a father that sits there as he sends out resume after resume after resume because he can't find a job. And in the back of his mind, he's wondering, God, do you care? Families I've looked at as the economy has turned downward and careened And whether it was decisions they made or didn't make, they sat there and they prayed to God, God, don't let us lose our house. Get that final word that, no, you're going to lose your house. In the back of their head, they may not say it, and we tend to say really nice spiritual things, but we wonder, does God care? On a personal level, I still remember the day that my dad sat down and told me he was leaving my mom. I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I just remember going, what in the world? Remember hearing about how just the failure that had happened in their life and my just begging God day in and day out, God, you can heal their marriage. I know that you can heal their marriage. And I wouldn't have admitted it, but I'm like, God, do you care about what's going on here? It's my mom and my dad. People that have set out to do great things for God. And in doing those great things for God, for whatever reason, it falls through. And in the back of our head, we might not admit it, but we wonder, does God care? The mom that sits there and holds her child as her child just slowly dies, wondering where in the world is the ambulance? We're asking those questions in the back of our head, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And you cannot read the Bible without realizing we're not the only saints to do it. There's this question of whether or not God cares. 
And I love how John 11 is going to do this. It's going to take our perspective that's so limited at the time. And for a little brief flash of time, he's going to give us God's eyes. And I think many of that time that we're suffering and probably read verse 10, they are going, yeah, I relate to this. I'm like Martha and Lazarus and I'm like Mary and I'm wondering where God, where are you in this? There's a belief that God can do all things, but God, why didn't you bring this to bear in my life? Why not in my situation? We're battling like we do. And John wants to explain to them that they are truly Christ's precious sheep. That is so important to understand. Wherever you are in this room today, you are. If you know Jesus Christ, you are precious. And no matter how dismal it might appear, there is something so important to understand. These confusing delays are delays of love. No matter what's going on in your life at that time, these moments that you're sitting there, the thing that must never be forgotten is over and over because scripture never lies is God's love. God loves you incredibly no matter what you think at the time. And it's hard from our limited perspective. But in one small little verse, we suddenly get kind of the the answer to how this can be love and how in the world this can happen inside of verse 15. It seems to be that in this passage, the connection between this amazing love that we're talking about and belief collide together. And so when you look at verse 15, he says this. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, look at this. I'm glad that I was not there. Why, Jesus? What's the purpose of you not being there? So that you may believe. At the core of it, he told these guys that the reason that I wasn't, that I didn't go is so that you might believe. And even he says this word, I was glad, which is hard for us to wrap our minds around because in some way he was going to increase their belief. He was going to increase not only their belief, but everyone that was there. Jesus had promised them that this death was going to occur, but his point was, is I'm going to demonstrate the glory of the Son of God. This illness will put the glory of Jesus on display in some kind of a way in which these guys didn't understand at that time and it's going to make me look amazing and when I look amazing, you're going to believe and when you believe the outcome of which John promises the whole way through, you will have life. But this avenue that Jesus is taking them down is a little crazy and love compels Jesus to allow Lazarus to die because his death will help them see clearly. In more ways than they know, they're going to see the glory of God put in display in front of them. See, I think at the core of it, and this is the part I've been thinking about throughout the week, greater than our pain or despair or even our misery or our heartache is the privilege of capturing a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. At the time, it may not seem like it, but at the end of it, Jesus is saying, I want to give you the thing that you need the most. And the thing that you need the most might not be healing. The thing that you need the most is a glimpse into my glory. When you go back to John 9, and and it was referenced earlier when Jared was talking about it, here's Jesus, he comes in, and here's this guy sitting there blind from birth. And everybody's talking about, oh, he sinned, his parents sinned. And Jesus is like, you have the wrong perspective. You're looking at that man all wrong. It wasn't that he sinned or his parents sinned. He is the way he is so that you might see the works of the Son of God and believe. 
that's why I created him this way. But now it wasn't some guy that was unknown to, to all everyone that was there. This was somebody that he loved and someone that Jesus Christ, because he wanted people to see and believe and then to truly have life, he was going to even allow a dear friend to walk through the agony of death. And John, throughout the gospel that he writes, is trying to tell us that love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most may not be healing, but capturing glimpses of God. Love means giving us what would bring us the most full joy. And at the time we think, how could that tragedy bring me the full joy? But Jesus' point is, is that the tragedy doesn't bring us joy. It's what comes from seeing Jesus Christ modeled, that it's going to be joy not only in your life, but it's going to be compounded in everybody's life that, I, that comes into contact with this. Love is doing whatever he can to help us to truly see Jesus. And I think at the end of it, that's where we look at it and go, gosh, God, I am so thankful that no matter what tragedy I go through, no matter what turmoil might come upon me, whether it's death or life or whatever it is, Jesus, the beauty of being one of his sheep is, is that it won't be wasted. Your pain will not be wasted. Your agony will not be wasted. Everything that you go through will not be wasted. In fact, it'll be the exact opposite, that what he brings from our pain and our death and our misery and our heartache is something so beautiful is that people then might believe and in believing have life. And a lot of times people will say, well, yeah, but Lazarus was healed. We know that. We've read the rest of the story. But John's point in this passage isn't necessarily the healing, but John's main point is the circumstance in which helping people to believe and receive life. So the question is, well, yeah, but what if I don't receive the healing? Look at Hebrews 11. Go with me there. Hebrews 11. Look at verse 32. The writer's talking about this idea of belief and talking about this idea of the work of God, and talking about this idea of future people that are going to believe in him. And what he does in verse 32 is he says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, verse 33, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And now we're saying, yes, that's what I'm talking about. God putting on display in the way he conquers and overcomes. That's the way I want it. But actually, he's going to say something bigger in here next. It's not just in our perceived victories that the glory of God is put forward. In fact, sometimes now, look what he's going to say, and some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had promised something better for us. See, the beauty of God is whether he, no matter what his path that he chooses to take, is that his ultimate goal is that we would see Jesus glorified. And in seeing Jesus glorified, people would believe and in believing that all of us would have life. 
The early saints learned this, that as the, as the Romans tried to conquer them and oppress them, that actually what was happening is that as their brothers and sisters in Christ even died, that the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the kingdom. See, sometimes in the lowest moments when nothing else can speak into it, God comes into it and speaks boldly of the glory of Jesus. I think even sometimes we forget that in that purpose that he will never ask us to walk a path that his son wasn't asked to walk. So like when you go to Isaiah 53, right, it was the Lord's good plan to crush his son and cause him grief. Why? Why did he do it? Because God had something bigger in mind. He had this people that he was going to gather together through watching and causing, actually pouring out his wrath on his own son, allowing his one and only son to come and to feel the burden of the wrath of the father. He defeated the grand enemy of sin so that we might live. And if he'll ask his one and only son to go down a difficult path, don't you ever think he won't ask his adopted sons and daughters to walk the same path? But he'll ask us to walk that path with the idea that our suffering and our pain and our agony will have purpose. The reason that I can have joy is because it will have purpose to it. And so I don't know where everybody's at today. I just say this as a shepherd to you. Those of you right now in the midst of tough and difficult times that are struggling to see God's perspective, that's why you need this body. It's so hard. You don't mean to get focused on your own loss and your own grief and but yet you do and you know that what happens is, is the more that I get focused on myself and my own grief, it just causes more and more dilemma and pain in my life. And what Jesus Christ is even trying to do in this difficult moment is to say to those of us, even in our most difficult times, get your eyes off yourself and back onto what matters, Jesus Christ. Get them there. See him. See his glory. Even in the midst of asking you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, get your eyes back on Jesus so that you might believe and in believing have life. So if you need prayer today, I would love to pray for you. But let me talk to those of you in here that don't know Jesus. I want to be crystal clear. Jesus loved you so much, he went to a cross. Amazing. Those of us in this room that know Jesus, though, you need to understand something. We may not want to at times, but we would walk the same path so that you might believe. We can't die for you in the sense that Jesus did, but if it means our death, if it means our agony, if it means our pain, let me tell you something. That's how much we love you. We want you to know Jesus and see Jesus and savor Jesus and walk with Jesus. We want you to fall in love with him. And out of that love, the thing that I want more than anything for those of you in this room that don't know Jesus is, is I want you to have the life that he promises And so that's why we understand, listen to me, Paul said it. He said, look, to live is Christ. If I need to stay here and I need to live so that you might believe, I will live here. In fact, his point was, I will go through some of the most difficult things so that you might see Christ. But he understood in his head, if you take me home, I don't care. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Either way, Paul was saying, those of us that know Jesus, we win. 
And so if you don't know Jesus today, we'd love to talk with you about how you can know Jesus Christ. So if you want to in the prayer room, we'd love to pray with you about how you can know him. And then finally, just baptism. Those of you that say you follow Jesus and aren't baptized, it's time to put your walk where your mouth is and to come in front of the church and tell everyone I want to follow Jesus. But I want to finish this way, and I've finished this way for three weeks in a row, and here's my fourth. Never, ever, ever, ever forget Jesus loves you. Do you hear me? Never, ever forget that. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for allowing Mary and Martha and specifically Lazarus to go through such a difficult time. Not only so the people there would believe, but God, so that we would believe. God, we say this with loose hands and even sometimes fear and waves. But God, we want life. I want life in this room. I want life because you have come and you've show, so shown us your glory in so many different ways. And God, I know that sometimes you show us your glory in some of the lowest moments of our lives, but I want to see it, Father, because I want people to believe. I want me to believe in a greater way. I want others to believe in a greater way. I want those that don't know you to believe even for this first time, God, so that we can have life. God, would your spirit just invigorate us? Would you get our eyes off of us and onto you? And in getting our eyes onto you, God, would you do the miraculous, powerful work of giving us the life that surpasses anything we can imagine, the abundant life, I beg you. We love you so much, Father, in your precious name. Amen.